Hello and welcome to City Community Culture with me, Sam Bergen. Wildfires by Salt, used under fair use for quotation, critique or review. Their 2020 album, Untitled Brackets Black Is, arrived during a peak of state violence against black people in the USA and the return of the Black Lives Matter movement. Lyrics such as White Lives Spreading Lies and Take Off Your Badge, We All Know It Was Murder, refer to the racist police oppression brutality and violence, which led to the deaths of innocent Americans such as Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, amongst many others. It was the death of Floyd which really sparked the return of the Black Lives Matter movement, with riots and protests erupting worldwide. Black Lives Matter described themselves as a global organisation in the US, UK and Canada whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes. By combating and countering acts of violence, creating space for black imagination and innovation and centering black joy, we are winning immediate improvements in our lives. Black Lives Matter compel us to recognize that we live in a time where being a person of colour in a white city is to potentially experience racist attacks, state harassment and even fear for your life. This week on City Community Culture, we'll be focusing on the intersection of race and urban space. Historically, cities have been places defined by their diversity and a popular definition of urban experience is that it involves encounters with difference i.e. people from different backgrounds, cultures, races, etc. Yet by the same token, the city has also been a site of segregation, division and inter-community conflict. As urban sociologists, therefore, we need to pay attention to how these social separations and tensions between people are manifested spatially and materially. We live in a structurally racist society So how has this been incorporated into, perpetuated and challenged by urban spaces? 
Birmingham in the UK is a diverse city. The existence of different black communities, which in this context refers to people of colour, means there exists a visible notion of safety in numbers, which allows many people to feel at ease and have a sense of belonging in the cityscape. As Dudra puts it, this is a city, like many, which is being continually made and remade as a place of belonging. The very presence of black people demands, demands a reimagination of race and space, which incorporates a diversity of cultural, economic, political and social experiences. Yet Birmingham is simultaneously a post-industrial city that has long focused on consumption and shopping, often to the detriment of existing communities in the city, instead focusing on attracting outside consumers. As Utsoka and Reeve have argued, the newly regenerated core consumption sites have been redesigned to provide predominantly for the business and retail sectors that target the wealthy, whilst marginalising those sectors that serve the needs of poorer populations and the elderly. Traditional markets within the city centre have been relocated and replaced by the Bullring Shopping Centre, which has been developed as privately owned public space for the high street, <coughs> with highly selected retail, such as designers' floors in an upmarket department store, Selfridges. When a city centre is repurposed in this way, this leads us to ask, whose city is it? Who feels included and excluded? And how are these inclusions and exclusions expressed and perpetuated by urban design, aesthetics and ambience? Who or what is the public or part of the public in this apparently public space? And what happens when traditional markets are pushed out of the city by these big department stores? In the structural transformation of the public sphere, Habermas argues that we are seeing a decline of public space, which is crucial for democratic participation, debate and conversations. Tracing the history of the term public, he highlights the complexity of defining this term. On the one hand, the public might be considered somewhere that is open to all, yet it might also refer to a public building in other words, a state institution which isn't immediately accessible. We also might refer to a public authority as something which promotes the public or common welfare, or the public itself as something which carries public opinion, whatever that means. And yet despite this complexity, we refer to the public all the time without really considering what, where or who we mean by this in practice. To try and find some clarity, Habermas therefore traces the term back to ancient Greece. Here, the polis was a space of free citizens in the city, and the marketplace, or agora, was a crucial forum for political discussion, speeches, consultation and action. Since the European Renaissance, Habermas argues that this Greek model of the public sphere has been handed down to us and has held a particularly normative power in the way in which we understand public space. And yet he fears it's also a sphere that's now in a state of decomposition and decline, 
with today's marketplaces or agoras becoming increasingly homogenized and designed to service quick and efficient consumption rather than conversation and debate. Is there any room left for the polis in today's city? Habermas also points out some of the limitations of this Greek-European model of the public sphere. From the beginning, this was a space dominated by men who were not only considered to be the representatives of their household, but were also freed of the labour of social reproduction by women and slaves. It was also based on the premise that people had to be literate in order to participate in the polis, and as such right from the start, the ability to be a free citizen and participate in public space has been based on exclusion. This ideal model of European urban democracy, where everyone should be able to converse as equals, was already flawed. Whilst accepting that Habermas recognises that his concept of the public sphere is shot through with contradictions, other scholars have nevertheless argued that his theory still has a narrow treatment of class and gender, as well as the omission of race as relevant to the public sphere. As Dudra has argued, Habermas forgot to mention that race is also of relevance, and being white was important alongside being bourgeois, male and literate. For Dudra, cities like Birmingham, which have diverse connections to other parts of the world, demand a need for a more complex account of urban formations and their connections to local and global geographies. In contrast to Habermas, therefore, Dudra advances the idea of a black public sphere. This is a term that first emerged in the USA and it was a concept which has initiated an international debate around what, around what constitutes the public and its connection to global geographies. According to the Black Public Sphere Collective, this is a framing of an alternative public, one that draws its energy not from these bourgeois male European histories, but from the vernacular practices of street talk, new music, radio shows, church voices, entrepreneurship and circulation. For Didra, the very audio and visual presence of black popular cultures in the city, by which he means people of colour, demonstrates the staying power of ethnic minorities, who have perhaps now become cultural majorities in most cities. Whilst the black public might therefore take place in a predominantly black areas of the city, they nevertheless represent a challenge to racist and conservative understandings of public space. In order to reflect further on this idea of public space, I met up with Dr Zaki Nahabu, a lecturer in sociology at Birmingham City University, to discuss examples of colonial histories in Birmingham City Centre that illustrate constructions of race and space. So, um, today we're sitting in Chamberlain Square and it's fairly quiet this morning as it's kind of peak rush hour is gone, so people have already come to work, there's a few school um, trips going ahead, I perceive, just by the number of, <laughs> of students milling around in large groups. But in Chamberlain Square, there's, there's loads of monuments around us, or rather public buildings that um, have become um, perceived as monuments to what is Birmingham's um, public life cityscape kind of thing. How they've designed it is um, there's, a, there's a kind of like a bend in the walkway that is allowing access 
through to um, Centenary Square and through to the um, conference centres, the library over there. So it's designed in a way for as a transit route, really, okay. rather than a square to be settled in. How, having said that, however, we've got a kind of forum-like curve um, seating area that we're sitting on right now. And our seating area is directly facing the, the monument to Chamberlain. And there is a bit of a public square here area um, that is, is fairly open, uh, fairly accessible. But as you say, you know, it's, it's, it's not a place to sit, really. Yeah. There's not much public furniture. <laughs> yeah. It's... Uh, it's a bit sparse. Architectural decisions sometimes are based around what has gone on before in other public space in terms of instrumental use of how, how what, what's going to work and how's it done before been done before by another architect that has received public praise. So there's a kind of mimicking and copying of format and that makes it easier to design things yeah. as well. You'd have to be too inventive. So there's a, um, there's a little bit of instrumentality here with architects doing that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But um, there is a possibility of reading into things. And, but reading into things isn't necessarily bad because it opens our perspective in different ways. Um, so yeah, I think there is definitely this idea of this is how to organize public life. And there is a Eurocentric element to it, as you're suggesting. Um, it's, it's, it's something that's not unique to Birmingham. There's these, these kind of ways of designing public spaces pro propping up in King's Cross as well, which is similar to um, King's Cross London, that is. Similar to how financial public spaces are organised. There is a strange uh, mimicking of the forum-style space in financial centres for some reason. Um, it's happening here in Birmingham, it's happening in other areas in London as well, when financial, uh, financial um, offices are being set up in city centres. Now, I would say that this is uh, invites a certain, um, a certain way of using public space to look down at uh, a speaker and the speaker looks up. Now, as we say, um, this could be Eurocentric, but it's also, there's something unsettling about this as well in the sense that this is where plays are performed as well. Plays are organised in this fashion as well. So there's, there's different ways of interpreting um, interpreting this space. It can be reappropriated, used in different ways. Agency is very central to public space. A designer has something in mind, but the person using that space can use it in their own way. So there's, um, as Henri Lefebvre might say, there's representations of space and spaces of representation. And there's a kind of... Um, interplay between the two um, about how, how space is designed and how space is used and how is it interpreted. So that's definitely um, the publicness of space in the sense that it is open to people's use in different, different ways. Which is not to say it's not regulated, but that's, a, that's another thing. The idea of the black public sphere is a direct challenge to the city. It aims to distinguish between those aspects of popular culture which serve to secure consent to existing social arrangements and those which, on the other hand, embody alternative values and supply a source of opposition to those arrangements. By recognising how black popular culture can be used as a tool in the struggle towards definitions of belonging in contemporary space in the West, Deirdre argues that it should be considered the flip side to Habermas's conception 
and imaginary of public life in the West. As other scholars such as Said and Gilroy have also argued, ideas of Western progress, development, rationality and reason have long been predicated on the marginalisation of black people. And subsequently, black people in the West have been accorded partial access to the dominant public sphere, a domain which has been defined explicitly and implicitly as white. As we looked at the design of Chamberlain Square in Birmingham, Zaki began to outline some of the explicit and hidden histories which were underpinning this space, in particular focusing on the monument to Chamberlain himself, cited in the middle. After his um, term as well, they built um, a memorial to Chamberlain, um, which is also built by uh, a guy named Chamberlain, but of no relation. And that was, um, that was built to just commemorate all the public work that uh, Joseph Chamberlain did during his time here, which was helping out with um, the development of education schools, giving public access to schools. Uh, what else? He, um, he helped develop the public gas and waterworks here before it was in private ownership. So he developed that as uh, saying, well, this should be funded publicly. It shouldn't be hands of the private, uh, private corporation. So it was a gas company and water as well. Okay. So he made that public. Um, so there's a lot of public works that went on during his time as okay. mayor. So I think if we, if we look behind me, um, there's uh, the town hall or city hall. And that's really um, the last building that uh, Joseph Chamberlain um, advised to be built at the end of his mayoral term, which was from 1873 to 1876. And when he, built, when he approved these plans for it to be built, they had to clear out the slums around about Corporation Street. So in order to clear this area, what they had to do was make sure that the public's, this area here was, um, you know, fit for construction. So they ended up getting rid of a slums area of the poor, very poor working class communities over down by Corporation Street. And the mortality rates were so high in those slum area, that was a kind of justification for it, because people couldn't live there. It was a health hazard, hygiene hazard, so they, they defended the argument based on public health grounds um, rather than displacing communities. So that's the reason why they, they kind of chose that area here, around about here, to be built. So I would say um, this is what, what I've talked about is the knocking down of housing um, to facilitate public space as well as, um, you know, his, his, his work on um, having a public gas works, public water supply to a city improving it as a self-sustaining city that's public, all these kind of things. So it sounds like these are very positive developments as well as these negative developments of slum clearance. Um, without, I, I must add, without um, providing alternative accommodation yeah. for the people. I mean, yeah. it's a different matter if they remove the slums and then provided um, housing, but that wasn't the case yeah. under Chamberlain's uh, office. So this grand monument, um, coming back to this grand kind of monument that, you, that you're drawing our attention to, um, yeah, it's, it's built in the, uh, kind of the neo-Gothic style that is typical of the northern towns, uh, especially you know, when you think of Manchester, when you think of Birmingham as well, in, particularly in the south side of Birmingham, around the Mosley area, you see these kind of uh, church-style uh, buildings. Uh, my speculation is it could be an homage, and this is speculation here, to um, 
Chamberlain's own Utilitarian background. Because, as we know, Chamberlain, when he, before he became um, a mayor, he was a, you know, a leading industrialist in Birmingham. And he was um, into the screws business, okay. making screws. <laughs> um, when he made these screws, um, made a fortune out of it. But unlike um, this generic avarice kind of capitalist, he coming from this Unitarian background and really emphasizing Unitarian um, religiosity. He was also invested in social um, social enterprise, so reinvesting money into um, education, okay. into um, public um, public works, and all these kind of things. So it kind of followed on through his life. Okay. Now, the negative aspects now that, that you're hinting at, this, these negative aspects. One thing here is. If we think about this public space as, as a kind of presence, right? We can see it here, but what we can't see in the public square here is and Joseph Chamberlain's legacy overseas. Okay. So he was um, he was a strong advocate of um, colonialism and imperialism, particularly the unionisation of South Africa, uh, because this is this is in the 1890s now, in 1900s after he was. Um, after he finished his term as office, he became an MP for Birmingham West. In the, in the, after 1896, he became an MP, then he became a secretary. And his legacy here is also about how to... Um, it was about how to unify South Africa, how to unify colonialism, these different disparate colon, uh, colonies, um, bring it under one administrative rule. This union of South Africa, but also this union of, of colonies as well. So it's really advocating for um, imperial consolidation, making sure that this imperial parliament that can govern, um, that is not simply Westminster, but involving other colonial powers as well. Um, that is to say, the settler colonies. Um, so he has that legacy. He's who was very um, unconcerned about the dependencies in terms of their welfare. So you can see this, this colour line being drawn in how we, how we thought of imperialism. So th this kind of thing, you, you don't see that, you know, yeah. in, in life, in public life. You don't see that in the square. We don't see a monument to um, how he was an imperial figure. We see the legacies of how he was an imperial, uh, how he was a figure of public works in Birmingham, yeah. not um, anti-public works, if we want to use that term, over overseas. My understanding is that this square um, gave its name to Chamberlain really um, towards the end of his end of his um, period here, period in office, that is. But yeah, I mean, it, it was conceived as a public square. But the idea here of the public square is just for. Um, for general use in terms of access to the, the art galleries here. Yep. Much of it has changed over time as we can see there's a Dishoom restaurant, there's PwC, so uh, financial um, sectors have kind of set up shop here as well. Yep. Uh, and there's further new offices that are being built. So it's clear it's changed over time definitely. I would say that he um, has in mind this public you're speaking of, this liberal, this bourgeoisie, this um, civil public that is industrious, working class, hardworking, but also a middle class that is concerned with the working class. So a kind of corporatist arrangement, um, what would later be called corporatism or 
this uh, liberal socialism. I mean, he was a member of the Liberal Party um, before the before the Labour Party had even formed. Um, so he had those kind of uh, national Labour kind of policies um, that kind of filter through thinking, religious as well, this Unitarian, this kind of socialism idea, but not coming from Marx, I'm, I'm thinking here, but it's a socialism coming from this Unitarian uh, background, which which he made very explicit, this is yeah. where it's coming from. So um, these symbolic overtones, I, I suppose it's, um, people are using the square, I think, purely in instrumental ways at the moment, as we're seeing now. People are walking through. Um, there has been there have been protests organised in uh, Victoria Square and um, Chamberlain Square, but not around colonialism and not around that legacy. As far as I'm aware, it's around labour, around pensions, around NHS, around the current issues that are um, that are really at the forefront of people's economic interests at the moment. Um, these kind of things have not been connected with broader transnational histories or legacies or, or things like that, um, at least in recent years. So the, the kind of um, overtones here is this grandeur. I, I see the physical overtones is this grandeur of uh, buildings in the neoclassical style and it doesn't have that, um, that recognition of colonial legacy really, yeah. is what I'd say. Public space in European, North American and Australasian cities has long been a place of exclusion and policing for communities of colour and the working classes, whilst predicated on the assumption of participation of the white middle class. Subsequently, being able to claim a sense of place and feel safe on one's own terms in the city has always been in relation to a wider understanding of how these spaces are constantly being constructed through white discourse. <clears throat> in his re research on Birmingham, Dudra shared two examples of white governance of urban space which have this exclusionary effect. The first example comes from the forms of constructed knowledge about black areas of the city as no-go areas in the white imagination. These knowledges work discursively, symbolically and insidiously to construct black people as pollutants of urban spaces, even when white people are residents of the same areas. One of Didra's participants in his research shared an example of this, where he was waiting to cross at the traffic lights and a white man in a car started to wind up his window and look at him like he was going to steal the car. The second example from his research of white governance in Birmingham's urban spaces also points to the brutality of policing in the inner city. The treatment of Asian women mentioned in Manjit's recollection is just one example of racial profiling suffered by black communities at the hands of the police in large cities. One of Didra's participants recounts how two women, both Asian, had argued over something and apparently one pushed or slapped the other. The police were called and one copper started to forcefully push the Asian woman into the car to take her to the station. When people found out what was happening, they started to come out of their houses and began to protest at the police handling of the situation. Within minutes, another two police cars turned up and a riot van started patrolling the street. See, that's the thing. It's, one is not supposed to 
uh, discriminate against in surveillance. Surveillance is supposed to be flat, okay? but as you're saying, uh, how one looks at public life as a security guard may um, may uh, definitely pick out individuals from a crowd and focus their attention on them. And this kind of discrimination is um, is particularly prevalent in public life for a way of managing people. Because there's the assumption of, of criminality with certain groups. Yeah. I mean, in, in Habermas's sense, uh, I suppose uh, the, the public sphere is, is accessible to all who can communicate on the terms of a liberal, um, informed, deliberative uh, modality of public life. It doesn't matter whether you're black, you're white, you're a woman or whatever. That's the assumption right, of Habermas, that anyone can access it can be can access this public sphere if they know the language the discourse for communicative action and I would um, I would say if we if we look at this space here there isn't um, there's a few security guards around uh, the, the few security guards around are, are milling around very, very unconcerned about what's going on here uh, because how people are using this public square at the minute is that people are just walking through it. Now, hypothetically, if there was a protest or something that wasn't authorised, or um, something that, a, a civil disturbance, there would hypothetically, that, that security guard would call it in and inform superiors, inform um, those who can, who can manage a situation. Now, if this in the, in the Habermasian sense, can we think about the public sphere in the sense that would there be uh, implicit forms of exclusion going on around, um, particularly around race? It's possible. It's possible these things um, happen in public demonstrations if this square was used in that way. This is where it gets hard to prove because law doesn't discriminate according to racial lines in terms of uh, public protest in explicit law. There's no there's no law around that in the country, right? But how law takes place in practice on the front line and how police work, it might be a different matter. So whether the, Hab the Habermas in public sphere works in practice is a different matter. And that's where we can bring in the critiques of, of Habermas's ideas. In his work on American cities, renowned urban scholar Elijah Anderson identifies what he calls white spaces to explain this kind of spatial policing. Whilst varying in kind, Anderson argues that many neighbourhoods, schools, workplaces, restaurants and other public spaces remain overwhelmingly white. And when an anonymous black person enters these spaces, the white majority immediately try and make sense of them. Who is it? What's their business? Should we be concerned? This is because many white Americans assume that the natural black space is the destitute and fearsome locality commonly featured in the media, music, books, videos, video games and the news, which Anderson calls the iconic ghetto. Because of an absence of routine social contact between black and white communities, stigma and stereotypes rule perception, creating a situation which estranges people of colour. The most tolerated black person in white space, Anderson argues, is the one who is in their place. For example, working as a janitor or service person or someone who's been vouched for by other white people. 
or perhaps someone who is performing in a way which distanced themselves from ghetto stereotypes. Subsequently, Anderson argues that these are perceived as informally off-limit spaces for black communities. But whilst white people typically avoid black spaces, black people are required to navigate white space as a condition of existence in the city. When present in white spaces, Anderson argues that black people reflexively note the proportion of white people to black and are made to feel uneasy or out of place. The city's public spaces, workplaces and neighbourhoods may now be conceptualised essentially as a mosaic of white spaces, black spaces and cosmopolitan spaces or racially diverse islands. There may be in various stages of flux from white to black or from black to white. This is what Anderson refers to elsewhere as a cosmopolitan canopy, which exists as diverse islands located in a virtual sea of racial segregation. I would look at this space as uh, could be, definitely could be, a white space, because we're looking at class here as well. And we see greater representation of a middle class as white. We see PwC here. We see who has who has interest in accessing this space would be more to stay in this space would be more white individuals. It's not to say that racialized individuals, other racialized individuals, wouldn't access this, but. It, it gets quite difficult because I can't speak for all racialized individuals in terms of how they perceive the space. But it has got that white impression. The, the grandeur of the buildings, the, the styles of it, is harking back to this Greco-Roman time. What has this got to do with um, the histories and cultures of people who are um, who are not claiming that tradition as theirs? So. This kind of these kind of monuments impress upon individuals and say, well, this is an implicit white space as well. So not only the class element but the architectural elements as well give that impression of whiteness. Um, so yeah, so um, having uh, a more representative public space, particularly in terms of the physical monuments here, making it um, more accessible in terms of the memorialization of space really and uh, more inclusive sorry in terms of the memorialization of space I think that could go a long way to to, to making this public space um, to address this white public space in a way to redress it sorry and allow that inclusivity to come through so maybe um, it could be a a permanent memorialization in terms of who was Chamberlain. Why is this? Why is this square named Chamberlain? Have a bit of a description about the um, the social reforms he did in Birmingham and his interest in empire as well. So it's that's not to say there's. I, I'm saying put a balanced picture across. I'm saying put a complex story across about who Chamberlain was and what what is his legacy really. Don't have this West Midlands centric legacy, but. Um, West Midlands connected to Empire. Following on from the point about how do we create that inclusive public space and questions about legacies of Empire is the thing is not to detract from the point about there was World War One, there was catastrophe and have that remembrance but how is that remembrance done? Why is it still seen as British white triumph when really it was 
a defensive empire and it was also a contribution of um, the colonized subjects to the war effort as well so it's they're part of the same community it's weird that the nation state becomes hemmed into the borders of Dover and things like that rather than it being this polity of Britain being transnational um, and that's how Britain needs to think of itself as having that transnational space. As Michael Hanchard notes, through segregation and other forms of racial alienation, there are alternative public spheres operating within a more broadly defined public sphere. Marginalised groups seek to create territorial and epistemological communities for themselves as a consequence of being in a subordinate location within the bourgeois public sphere. In this sense, working with the notion of a black public sphere means that we are implicitly taking issue with the idea that Western citizenry only refers to white people. In this way, the black public sphere is necessarily a concept which argues for and makes place for black people as citizens in the West. Yet this is up against a wider bourgeois public sphere in history which underpins the way in which we understand public space in cities. It's a very interesting uh, critique of Habermas because if we think about political blackness taking place in the public sphere um, and we're thinking of this black public sphere, it doesn't have to be articulated in the terms that Habermas says, which is the terms of someone could be black, white, whatever, but if they're talking in the language of civil, liberal, bourgeoisie discourse, they'd be accepted in that sphere. Now, if we think about a black public sphere, it could be forms of demonstration, protest, or even just recognition of public life, dance, different forms of culture taking place, is about claiming the public space. So that's a political act as well. That's a, that could be interpreted as a black public sphere if there's carnival taking place here. It, de it unsettles the, these monuments and the legacies they, they impose on this space. So if we have a carnival, say, where I'm looking at is, at the moment, is at the Chamberlain Monument. Having carnivals here, having festivals, having um, different forms of cultural engagement. Someone may consider this tripe multiculturalism, but I, I would say that this is also a reclaiming of public space, um, and it's not simply recognition of diversity, but it produces a difference in public life, and that difference is unsettling the, the kind of Habermasian neutral public space. I think if it gets um, a kind of corporate multiculturalism kind of uh, uh, process goes on, I think that would not qualify as, in my view, as a black public sphere. Because a public sphere is about um, engagement with unsettling what counts, who, who should be qualified as engaging in public life, what counts as a public good, how to um, articulate that. So if, for example, the Notting Hill, I know we're moving away from Birmingham here, but the Notting Hill Carnival um, is a good example of this. It's an anti-racist kind of carnivalesque uh, movement in a way, but then it gets commercialized. Yeah. Uh, so there is a sense of this being a black public sphere, but arguably less so the case today. But then it can re-emerge as well when there's protests against police and things like that. So it's about how is corporatism negotiated with people doing the activity.
So people can have the message of saying, you know, this is celebration of diversity, but how are people actually using that space when it comes to the event itself? It's important to recognise that the idea of a black public sphere is not a simple refutation of the dominant white public space. Rather, the vitality of a black public sphere is a necessary condition for the vitality of a dominant public sphere. It extends the horizon of generosity, the politics of well-being and the deepening of democratic values. In contrast to Habermas's bourgeois public sphere, black public sphere entails a wider realm of critical practice and assertive notions of citizenry in the here and now. It includes a visionary politics in which everyday folk, including intellectuals, can join in with the energies of the street, the school, the church and the city to constitute a challenge to the exclusionary violence of much public space, space in the West. Thank you for listening. And I'll see you next time on City Community Culture. We are dying, that's the reason we are crying. We are crying. But we will never show.